Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast uh, usually about the number one singles in Australia throughout the 90s. Tonight, however, we have another one of our uh, regular Choose Your Own Adventure episodes and this week we wrap up 1994. Uh, my name is Casey Atkins and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. Casey's hosting. I should have taken the left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> What am I supposed to do with my hands? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I'm along from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. All righty then. <laughs> okay, so as usual with our Choose Your Own Adventure episodes, we've also um, all chosen a movie. Um, we have a four-sided die that's going to tell us which order these songs go in. So um, if we can all tell us what movies we've got on the four-sided dice, Tim Coyle. Uh, Heavenly Creatures. Danny. Uh, I chose Forrest Gump. Tim Byron. 1994 was such a hard choice. I could have chosen between Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Dumb and Dumber, or The Mask. <laughs> you, you forgot <laughs> for Ace Ventura. You forgot City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Golf. Jim Carrey was not in that. Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Ace Ventura Pet Detective it is, and I went for uh, Pulp Fiction. All right, excellent. So I think everybody now knows pretty much the uh, the way these all work. So let's uh, go straight for it. Danny, you want to roll those dice and see who's first? And it has come up as Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which is Tim Byron. Um, so what we also need to do is, before Tim tells us what song he has chosen, uh, go around the room and find out what we all thought Tim would choose. Danny. These shows are really elaborate now. <laughs> There's a lot of rules. I know. There are which, is, which is suitable for a four-sided dice uh, <laughs> conversation. Look, uh, I chose Disarm by Smashing Pumpkins. Tim Coyle? I chose Loser by Beck. And I also choose... Choose? I chose Disarm by Smashing Pumpkins. Tim Byron, what did you choose? Well, Disarm by Smashing Pumpkins was a pretty good choice because for a while that really was my favourite song ever. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't my favourite song ever in 1994. My favourite song ever in 1994 was Asshole by Dennis Leary. Folks, I'd like to sing a song about the American dream. About me. About you. About the way our American hearts beat way down in the bottom of our chests. About that special feeling we get in the cockles of our hearts. Maybe below the cockles. Maybe in the subcockle area. Maybe in the liver. Maybe in the kidneys. Maybe even in the colon. We don't know. I'm just a regular Joe with a regular job. I'm your average white suburbanite slob. I like football and porno and books about war. I got an average house with a nice hardwood floor. My wife and my job, my kids and my car. My feet on my table and a Cuban cigar. But sometimes that just ain't enough to keep a man like me interested. Oh, no. No way. Uh-uh. No, I've got to go out and have fun at someone else's expense. Whoa. Fast lane while people behind me are going insane. I'm an asshole, yo yo, yo yo, yo yo, I'm an asshole, yo yo, 
And that was, I was going to say Dissemble the Smashing Pumpkins. No, that was Arsehole by Dennis Leary. Tim Byron, why did you choose this fucking song? <laughs> I mean, why did you choose this song? Well, um, yeah, I, I remember very clearly going in uh, to, I think, Kmart and buying on cassette 100%, uh, 100% hits volume 11 um, because I really, really wanted to have a copy of this song. And my mum wouldn't let me buy the single. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I could sneak it past her by buying the 100% hits nice. and say, no, mum, I just want to have It's All Right by E17. <laughs> <laughs> Good work. So, so I snuck it past and um, I think Arsehole is track one or something on this. And so I listened to track one and rewind it and then rewind it. And I do remember um, you know, being on the train coming home from school uh, in, in year seven because I had to start catching a train in year seven. And um, and me and my friends would would sing very loudly on the train the lyrics to this song, and um, so this is the song I most associate with 1994 in a lot of ways. It's the song that um, yeah, me and my friends would just like sing at the top of our voices on the train, probably annoying all the other commuters who were really frustrated at these smelly Year Seven kids in khaki uniforms, as the uniforms I had to wear were, and um, and yeah, so I really loved it at the time and. Uh, I don't think I really understood what it was about, uh, really. I think I mostly kind of enjoyed the attitude of it. I just mm. liked the kind of fact that he was an asshole and he was proud of it. And um, that was interesting and kind of funny. It was, I thought it was a hilarious thing. I don't think I really understood why. Like, you know, I didn't know who Sam Peckinpah or John Cassavetes was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but I liked the kind of, you know, I'm going to be an asshole and it's going to feel good. So, yeah, so that's um, what I liked about it. Uh, I have a, a different relationship <laughs> because I'm not 12 anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I, don't, I don't mind it now. I can see sort of it's doing some clever things. It's kind of catchy. I like the um, spelling out the letters of the word, even though he's spelling them wrong because we're in Australia, dog, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't mind it now, but it's not my favourite song anymore because, let's face it, it's a novelty song from 1994. Yeah. Damn. Well, yeah, I love this song at the time. It is amazing how big and pervasive this song was, right, when we were in school. And I guess, yeah, it's that thing. It's that thing where maybe even a couple of years later we would criticise Triple J for playing any song that just had the word, like a swear word in it. Like, mm. by the time we got to the tenants, you shit me to tears. Uh, it did shit me to tears. So... Um, but yeah, this song was a delight, uh, and it was so funny. Uh, I, I, through that, I discovered John Wayne, Sam Peckinpah, and John Cassavetes. <laughs> I realised there was one word in it I never quite understood, which is why he mentioned the Duke, and then I realised, oh, that's John Wayne. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I loved it. It was very, very funny. Uh, and obviously it was, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a second, it was number one on Hot 100 as well, so it was everywhere, and I had yeah. it I had on that compilation. Listening to it now, I really loved it. It's a song that I sort of have on the iPod as well, but I listen to it all the time, and it's great. It's so, it's very subversive. It's, it's still really funny. Like, it's kind of timeless. It hasn't really dated production-wise. And yeah, like the <laughs> I go to use public toilets and I piss on the seat. Like that's the worst thing you can do. Like literally. I just think that's really funny still. And still relevant and so just in some ways. And it's just like yeah. So that's definitely I liked it a lot at the time and I still like it a lot now. Tinko. 
Uh, I just want to point out that kind of Tim Byron's story of traveling on the train, listening to and singing at the top of his lungs, arsehole by Dennis Leary, and contrast that with Grant McLennan riding on a train and being inspired to write Cattle and Kane. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say. Was he 12 uh, at the time? No, it was when he was in school. <laughs> I don't think he wrote Cattle and Kane when he was 12. <laughs> Anyway, um, Arsehole by Dennis Leary. I, I loved it at the time. It was scatological humour. Yeah. Everyone loves that. Scatological. I'm sure that's what you call this. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I found it funny. It was odd because it confirmed a lot of what people said about Americans Yeah. Uh, for me. And it, and it had Dennis Leary acting like a complete completely obnoxious jerk in front of an American flag for part of the film clip. Um, And, yeah, I I, like Tim Byron. I didn't necessarily get the satire of it. Mm -hmm. I just thought, yeah, that guy really is an arsehole. But why would you want to be proud of being an (laughs) arsehole? So that was kind of 13-year-old me's reaction to it. And, yeah, as I say, I enjoyed the humour of it. it. First two listens this week, I really enjoyed it. And subsequently, yeah. after that, it, it wore pretty thin. Or diminishing returns. It's like I, I find a lot of stand-up comedy like that. I, I, I know others in this room disagree with me, but once I've heard the joke once, that's it. <laughs> it's it's not it's not coming back with any interest. But um, with this, another thing that occurred to me was it was that thing about it confirmed what we thought about Americans just being very obnoxious jerks. I listen to it now. This kind of attitude is becoming much more pervasive in Australia and not in any self-aware, ironic way. Australians are becoming like this. And, yeah, that kind of made me a bit sad uh, when I listened to it this week. But, yeah, it's a novelty song. It's still funny. But as I say, as as a song, you uh, maybe listen to it, listen to it once or twice, and you've you've got everything you need to know. And for uh, and enjoy that song. For a bit of context for the listener, um, this is being recorded two two days before the general election, so <laughs> probably a little bit of. This is going to uh, be the most depressed podcast of the whole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the next one. Oh, the, 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 the one yeah. afterwards. Oh, an election? I didn't hear. That. <laughs> Um, so, look, of course, who didn't love this song when they were, you know, probably was 13 at the time. I would have been, yeah, 13, maybe 14 when the song's out. And of course, it was brilliant. It was fantastic for all of the reasons mentioned. I can't really think of anything kind of particularly, uh, uh, different to say, you know, it was just one of those things that, you know, he swore in a song. It was funny. It was (laughs) hilarious. Talked about porno. Can we still love it? I didn't realise how much I actually still referenced this song, though. If, if you look at my Twitter feed, I reckon there's probably about three or four times where um, I'll say, how about this heat? I'm a really hot day. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is still a one line that consistently cracks me up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially because we live in Australia, right? Yeah. It's just such a... But, like, I also am not sure I realised how dickish that was to do until yeah. that song. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but, look, and, and 
like Tim Coyle said on pretty much the same, it was really law of diminishing returns. Like I listened to it, I was like, oh yeah, I used to love this, ha ha ha, very funny. And then I was like, oh, really? It just wore pretty thin pretty quickly. The only other line that I, I remember really liking at the time and really getting at the time was the um, quarter pounded cheeseburgers in the old fashioned, not biodegradable styrofoam containers. Because I think like they'd just gone from Australia. Like I still remember the old fashioned, non biodegradable styrofoam containers in McDonald's. I think they'd only just gone by that stage. Yeah, they had. Yeah, so I remember that being quite uh, quite pointed. Um, but yeah, look, I, I actually I, I pulled this up on audio as, as I do. And I listened to it. This was just one song on a on a stand up album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No um, cure for cancer. No cure for cancer. Album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his stand up's bloody terrible. That there's it's like it's better when Bill Hicks did it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the that's the story, right? I mean, the the yeah. As a big comedy fan, big fan of Bill Hicks, this album looms large as a legend because. Um, to some degree, Dennis Leary was like the Robin to Bill Hicks. They used to hang around, and Bill Hicks really took him under his wing. And then mm. after this album, their friendship um, disintegrated. And there's a, that book. Did, did he live lines specifically, or no, not just lines, a, just whole whole things? No, I, I don't think he did. I mean, well, the smoking thing is straight from Bill Hicks. Like that one in particular. Like he's yeah. got a thing about smoking, which is just straight from Bill Hicks's uh, stand up on the same thing. It's like sometimes word for word. Right. Yeah. yeah but, the, the allegations were about no plagiarism. I mean, Dennis Leary is obviously taken to, to different places, but the same kind of concept is there because what Dennis Leary is doing in the song, like why it's funny, is because. Um, you know, America has a political party devoted to being assholes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, like, you know, it is kind of the American dream for about half the American population to just be an asshole and get away with it because that's the American dream. Well, the, the funny thing with Dennis Leary is that he is very vocally, or at least was very vocally, a member of the other party in the U.S., but you can tell he really wants to be an asshole, and yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's come around much more to the the, uh, the asshole point of view. Because yes, he's a, he's a democrat. He is a democrat, but a lot of his positions are quite conservative. And I think he just railed against that very very obnoxious Republican kind of thing. That and that's part of the the John Wayne thing. He just picked the the biggest hypocrite and jerk <laughs> in yes. recent American history you could find. And yeah, it's kind of indicative of um, that, that mindset that he's describing in the song. So we've talked about his voice and his comedy voice and his, his, his shouting and ranting voice. What do we think of his singing voice? I think it's really good on this. Yeah. But, but who's better is the priest in the film clip. Yeah. <laughs> but he's yodeling and he's doing quite well. Mm. It does what it needs to do mm. in this song. He doesn't do anything special, but it, it kind of, it's that thing about communicating a particular message and that's exactly what he does in this and he uses his voice very well to do that. Yes, as far as um, you know, comedy vocalists in like novelty songs go, he's pretty not bad. Like he's um, you know, he's much better than the fast forward people who are doing um, you know, parodies of stuff at, around this point. Like they, some of their vocals are just awful. Like listening back to them for the vlog when we post them. But yeah, he, he's pretty good as far as comedy novelty songs go. I, I don't, I don't recall. I mean, obviously, Dennis has had a long career since. He's been in several movies and TV shows. And stuff I think like he's um he's an exec producer on the Marin show at the moment. Yes, he is. He's he's, he's, he's taking on an episode last year as well. So. And uh, yeah, he was in the one that was given away for free. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he's in 
Oh, what's the what's his show where he's a firefighter? It's his show that he's starting for like the main character for five seasons or something like that. Like, oh, and uh, he's a firefighter, and he was in the last Spider-Man film. But I'm not sure. And he shows up on he shows up on like John Stewart every so often. Right. But like, have you really heard him yeah. sing since? Yes, yeah, on the seasons. Yeah, I don't think we've ever heard him. I don't think. No. Like he's never done music. I think. I think that this was just a bit of a vehicle, like so he could have a single from his comedy record, really. And 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 you know what? It's it's quite a novel idea, and um, and it was it works. It it was a good example of it. Like it was a a perfect song to do, and it killed it. Yeah, this is the thing. He's got a good voice to to carry this particular joke and as I say it, it does exactly what it needs to do in this but if you had to listen to a whole album's worth of Dennis Leary singing I um, mean could yeah, you would do it <laughs> you wouldn't alright well I don't really think there's uh, heaps more to say about, about Dennis Leary and the song but um, I think a good way to, to finish off might be everybody tell me or tell us your favourite line out of this song and I'm going to go last because I haven't thought of mine yet put up your hand if you know what your favourite line is <laughs> we all do <laughs> You know, it is the, I, I think my sense of humour has gotten more and more un PC as the years go on, and there's just something that, that makes me laugh about when handicapped people with handicapped faces. There's just something just really disgustingly funny about it for me. Tim Byron. Two words. Nuclear fucking weapons. <laughs> I just laughed that it wasn't two words. <laughs> The cold shower. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Fifteen million times. Yeah. And I've already said it, um, but it's how about this? Hey? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and next on tonight, uh, Tim Coyle, you want to roll that dice? And it has come up as Pulp Fiction, so it is me. And. Uh, let's go around the table and see what everybody thought that I would pick. I'm very interested to know. Tim Byron. For some reason, I thought you would pick Mr. Jones by oh. Counting Crows. Okay, Dan. I thought you might pick Bex Loser. Uh-huh. I so thought No Rain by Blind Melon. Uh-huh. So nobody got it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is Stay by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories. <laughs> Another story about why I picked this one that I'll get to a little bit later in the night, but, you know, I won't give too much away, but um, this song is one of those songs when I was looking at the list of 1994 songs that I I liked it. I, I really liked it at the time, definitely. But I am always, 
always happy to hear it. You know, whenever the song comes on, wherever it might be, and it's like whether it's on radio or in a shopping centre or whatever, or on a, a TV show because it's often the you know, soundtrack to TV shows or whatever, I'm always really happy to hear it. You know, I never want it switched off. I'll always listen right through the end. And, and you know, I'll hear it once every six months or once a year, and I, and I always love it. And it's just one of those songs when I looked at the list, it was like, yeah, that song to me has always just um, stood up and, and stood the, the, the test of the years. So I'm going to listen to it a lot this week. Again, I felt the same thing. Um, uh, all except for that snare drum sound. <laughs> <laughs> because my god what is going on there um, it's like the highest tightest snare drum ever in the history of the world but no I still like it and she's you know she's also got that that um, you know hot librarian chic thing going on that I think that most of the people at this table probably appreciate and um, and yeah I, I, I think she's cool I think it was cool and um, I still like it to, to this day well, yeah, this song was, uh, yeah, huge and everywhere at the time, I remember, and it was nice. I remember liking it. Uh, it hasn't stood the test of time for me oh, really? in some ways, mainly lyrically. Okay. You know, I, I listened to this song this week and I kind of felt like the way I feel about Carly Rae Jepsen, which is this is a fine pop single and I probably would have liked it when I was 14. And so hence when I was 14, yeah, I did kind of like it. Yeah. But it hasn't aged very well. I guess just, you know, I'm a man in my early 30s. It doesn't really speak to me as much anymore. Uh, the, the one revelation of if this isn't, unlike the last song, it isn't a song that I've listened to regularly in the, in the intervening years. And for some reason in my head, I thought it was basically one girl with acoustic guitar. But there's really cool stuff happening. She's oh, singing full really, band, right? yeah, yeah, great harmonies. It's mm-hmm. really well produced. So that side of it. Oh, I, I assume all that back and vocal was her. Yeah, it sounds like her. Yeah. And she does really interesting things and the song goes to interesting places. So there was something really, really – this week I almost like, yeah, what I th- what I thought listening to the song, I was like, oh, it's going to be okay and listen to it. But then I listened to it and actually, yeah, it exceeded my expectations of it. So I really quite liked it. Cool. Uh, Tim, come oh. <sighs> I love this song. I loved it at the time. I loved her, goddammit. <laughs> this song would come on rage and I'd just be there kind of mooning. Yeah. Uh, mooning? Yes, mooning. You know what mooning meant? <laughs> Not like that. <laughs> anyway. It's a 40 year old Tim Cohen is asking the TV outside. <laughs> Really, really well. It's such a great fit. 
And yeah, I, I found that quite a striking thing. I, I really, the, the whole angsty thing at the time when I was 13 just was something that resonated with me a lot. And yeah, I was so close to choosing this song for myself yeah, really? uh, for this yeah. week. So yeah, it, it was it was very much a toss-up. And are. yeah, the, the other thing to come out of this week, I went back and listened to Talos, the album that this came off. Oh, yeah, this was the single before that album came out because it featured on Reality Bites, which mm, is where yes. she got her big break because she actually lived in the same apartment building as Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke took this song, really? gave it to Ben Stiller, and no Ben Stiller way. said, this is great, I'm putting it in my film. That, and, right. that, and she was not even signed to a label at this point, and on the strength of that, she uh, got a deal with Geffen and subsequently released the album Tales, which this is on. But I listened to Tales, it's a, really a lost gem Really, record from the 90s. It's a great, great album. And look, besides this song... A couple of other singles from it, which are great songs, um, are also uh, Waiting for Wednesday and Do You Sleep, which are really, really good songs. Tim Byron. At the time, I don't really remember like thinking much about this song. It was just kind of there. It wasn't something I super liked or super hated. It was just kind of there. <laughs> Listening to it now, um, uh, there's, there's a few things I really like about the song. I really like the way that she, um, with the way that she uses the rhythm of the melody to indicate kind of emotional kind of distress or like ang- you know anxiety mm. like the way that she's sort of the first couple of lines are pretty sort of languid and then she starts sort of like doing melodies that are, are much sort of da 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 like yeah there's more of an urgency to what she's saying isn't she yeah like yeah she and she does that really really well in the song and um but like at the same time and sorry and the other thing with the song that I do like is it really obviously sounds like a song that has been very, very carefully composed. It's got all that kind of wordplay and it's got the, um, yeah. you, know, you read it and it kind of like, you read it on the page and it kind of looks like a poem and it, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. that, that sort of works and, and sort of doesn't because it, it's, I, f- I feel like it, that stuff works in the song, but there's something missing in there. There's something that it, it could have done something more in the chorus or it could have like, that never quite get out gets out of second gear, and I feel like it wants to get out of second gear, um, and so like I feel like it's good, but it, it's not quite there in my head. Like listening to it now as a um, someone who cares way too much about songwriting kind of stuff like this. I yeah I I know what you're saying. I can't really agree though. I think that there's um, there's something in and. and it, both of you guys have spoken about the, the, the sound of the words, like, um, and we've spoken about this before and a lot of songwriters have written about it, um, about how that it's not just the words and what the words are saying, but how important the sound of the words are. And yeah. I think that that's something that come, that she does beautifully well. In song. It's, it's also what Tim Byron says, that it's increasingly becoming mouthful, like she's just trying to... Well, there's that, there's that point um, on the lyric where she says... Um, We've been dying since the day you were born, and she's like out of breath almost because of what's led up to that. And I just think that plays so beautifully, and I feel that that lifts it to that next kind of gear. Um, and and I feel like that 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 next you know gear, so to speak, is, is um, or like I feel that in her voice. It doesn't happen musically; it doesn't happen in the band track, um, but it happens in her vocal track. So that that's where I I get. It. I kind of like that the band is quite restrained mm. behind her in that way, though. It, it lets her voice come through and it, it really brings out that quality to it, which 
And you find this on the album in other songs as well. She just really skips over those lines yeah. really lightly. And, yeah, for whatever reason, I can't get into it in the technical manner that Tim Byron or yourself could. It, it just works mm. um, so well. And I'm not sure precisely why it's doing that, but, it's yeah, it's, it's an endearing quality to her voice. Can I tell a fun story that happened to me this week? And this song. And it wasn't actually to me, but, and I don't really talk about this on the podcast, but I work for Foxtel and Max is one of our stations and we do lots of countdowns. And we did a 90s countdown this week in mm. which this song was on. Right. <laughs> and I know there's going to be some people who listen to it at work and some people don't, but can, can I just say, I won't name the person, but there was a girl at work. We all have little TVs on our, ta- on our table. Oh, really? And a lot of us sort of put headphones on and watch telly. I watch a lot of Premier League football. <laughs> but I, uh, and there was a nice countdown, and I just saw one of my colleagues sing silently but mouthing every single word to this song yeah. as it played. And she, a lot of words. and she is sort of, you know, close to our age, and I can just imagine when she, when this song came out, mm-hmm. and a generation of women. Yeah. Like, we're all dudes here around this table, but let's think, like, and as much as I like the song and you love the song and, and everyone else, for girls, yeah. I, I mean, I remember the girls at my school loving this song and it was full on. This is a generational anthem. She sung for women everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And she did a beautiful job of it as well. And, like, I think the idea that she wasn't, uh, you know, a stick thing thin supermodel and you know she wore glasses and all that kind of stuff and the kind of stuff that, that you know we like about that also um you know spoke to a lot of those uh, a lot of those girls as well she also really really great well she yeah. also wasn't putting on front that she mm. was incredibly tough either i mm. mean there's a resilience there but it's a very natural resilience yeah and the character that comes across in the song it's not putting on that it's not a, a independent woman i mean obviously kind of the the Destiny's Child kind of um, all the women independent yeah that, that kind of thing which is you know that's fine mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's a good thing that um, Destiny's Child's uh, audience can listen to but um, yeah I, I just kind of yeah. the, vulner- the vulnerability she allows herself to convey in this song is also a good thing and I think it indeed uh, to a, a lot of her male and female listeners in that yeah she didn't try to put herself across as bulletproof and mm. and um, oh I, I think there's definitely there's a beautiful vulnerability there yeah. Yeah. and there's a beautiful honesty there I don't know yeah. the story of the song but she must have had a boy in mind. That's pretty explicit, really. The story is the the boy in mind was actually her producer at the time oh, she was writing the song. So. <laughs> but but to take that boy Awkward. in mind <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is rumors territory, right? To take that boy in yeah. mind and make it universal. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's really difficult to it's do. It's a very hard thing to do. And and, and, yeah. I, and I think we probably agree that she nailed it, you know. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was the number one in the US, this song. Mm. Oh, really? really? What did it get to here in Australia? Number six in Australia. So it's still a pretty decent performance for a song like this. It's a very... That's a very good sharp performance for a a song of this kind. Yeah, you look at the other songs that are, like, around it in the top 
uh, in, at number one in the US. And it's like stuff like Bump and Grind by R. Kelly and um, right. Salt and Pepper and stuff like that. This is like a really weird thing to be at number one in okay. 1994. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about the librarian cheek thing is that for us now, that's basically mainstream. Yeah. Like that kind of thing is like, you know, hipsters do it. Like they have that kind of looking like a librarian kind of thing. It's, you know, being a nerd and being is kind of a pretty hip kind of thing to do now. And in 1994, it so wasn't. It really, really wasn't. And she wasn't trying to be cool. She There was no one who thought she was cool at this point. So it's <laughs> kind of a, you know, a singer-songwriter who was like coming out from the heart, you know, and, and mm. people really related to that. But yeah, talking, like you were talking before about, um, you know, how girls must have really liked this song. Um, I, I should point out that my partner, JD, was in a band called Jane vs. World and, like, their single. Oh, I don't want to be your beard buried Lisa Loeb anymore. Yes, yes, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, we'll have to put that's that on the song. We'll have to put yeah. that up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to roll the dice this time. All right, and it has come up for us, Gump, which means that it's Danny and... Um, Okay, first, I thought that Danny might choose uh, Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen. Ah, okay, yeah. I just know Danny's got a 20-minute spiel on Pearl Jam within him, so I went Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for pretty much the same reasons, I chose Pearl Jam's daughter. Wow. Well, really? Well, I ended up choosing Closer by Nine Inch Nails. This song. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I like this song was so big back in the day, and I, I'm, I'm 14 now. You know, the idea of of sex and lust and all those things were in, in the head, but also, you know, I've spoken about faith no more before, I guess. And and one of the things I guess we keep dodging on this podcast is our love of things like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and heavier music and yeah. and Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name of that first record. And we, they haven't really organically come up here. And for me, I'll talk about this in my honorable mentions, but there really wasn't a clear song at all in 1994 that I love and one that I still listen to to this day as much as this one. 
And I still kind of like Trent Reznor. Mm. I think I kind of like the idea of Trent Reznor, Trent Reznor and, and reading interviews with Trent Reznor more than I like listening to his new albums. But this song was awesome back in the day. It is just, I mean, talk about sounding like nothing else. It yeah. was industrial rock that cut through the mainstream. Musically, it was all the things that I love, whether it was catchy and interesting and lyrically interesting, and then just the discovery of girls mm. and that thing. And it's really, and I'm really glad this came after Lisa Loeb because this is, <laughs> this, is the, yeah, this is the, yeah, this is the thing. Yeah, I, so that conversation would have sounded so grotty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, can we sort of go for a walk and talk about our feelings or just freaking get it on in the back of manly PCYC. So... <laughs> It is exactly what this 1994 song. was a very good year. All yeah. <laughs> well, shows, it was great. And so, uh, no, that came a couple of years after, but this song was in my head. Uh, and it is an amazing song for me. Listening to it today, well, I've still listened to it, and it is really the main thing from Nine Inch Nails I still care about. I've had other albums by Nine Inch Nails and whatever, but this song, and I think mainly through nostalgia, I still love uh, rest of the 90s now I can give or take but we'll talk about that but yeah mm. this is still a great song for me alright Tim Byron yeah like a couple of podcasts ago we talked about The Most Beautiful Girl in the World by Prince <laughs> <laughs> best reference <laughs> and like to me like you know this is the song that Prince should have released as a big single in 1994 because this is a Prince song. It's oh, like, totally a Prince, it's a Prince song. Like it's got kind of a, such a Prince kind of like electro beat. It's got like the kind of, you know, it's got like that kind of falsetto thing here and there. It's, it feels like a Prince song. And it's about the main thing that Prince, most of Prince's songs are about. <laughs> which is, and what's that? Fucking. <laughs> I was going to say monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> In 1994, I don't think I knew this song existed. Like, really? I listened, yeah. Yeah, like I listened to, I didn't listen to Triple J at this point. I was still 12 and I hadn't quite sort of made the leap over to, to that kind of stuff. And, you know, today FM weren't going to play this, even though it was a number three <laughs> single apparently. And so, yeah, I don't think I knew this song existed until probably a year or two later when I started sort of paying more attention to that kind of thing. And so I would have come across this when it was being played on on. Triple J later on when they would sometimes play, you know, songs from a couple of years ago, like they sometimes do. And so I would, I came across this song then and um, was, it was very taken by it because, I mean, the arrangement of it is just amazing. It's so minimalistic. Like there's so mm-hmm. little going on and everything that's going on is just has to be there. And um, it, it's a really, really effective arrangement in terms of how it builds up and, and then the story it's telling even through um you know, the, the obvious things about monkeys and, um, and and so forth, like the where it fits into the story in the downward spiral and all that kind of stuff really works and that kind of video clip that's really unsettling and weird. Um, like it, it's just so perfectly put together in so many ways and I love the kind of like, you know, that, that sort of click where it comes in as the hi-hat. I love mm. the kind of that drum machine at the start. It sounds so good, that drum machine. Like it just, mm. it just sounds so good. Like I don't know why a drum machine can sound that good, but this one does. And the thing about this music that I also liked was that, you know, there's guitars in there sort of later on, but this is basically keyboard music. Yeah. Like this is all keyboards. This is all keyboards and drum machines. And it doesn't sound like anything I'd heard until up until this point um, that was keyboards and drum machines. Like it didn't sound like a dance pop song. 
Um, like it didn't sound like culture beat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, yeah I'm not sure Trent Reznor was thinking of culture beat when he recorded this song. That's incredible. Tell us about Close to My Channels. This song scared crap out of me. Yeah. <laughs> when I was 13, you know, I was a wuss. <laughs> you know, I, I, I like The Cure's pop songs and I thought that made me kind of goth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> nah. Uh, it's like, yeah, I was really way off with that one because, you know, this song comes out and look, I think a lot of the things that Danny said, but the guys who like this in high school and would kind of see it very aggressively, um, kind of walking up and down the, the halls of, of our high school, um, yeah, it, it was kind of confronting just to, to, to see that and it, it was very much not where I was, mm. I think pretty much established in this podcast. I was a very late bloomer. So, yeah, I, I was still barely even um, an adolescent at this stage. And, yeah, I just kind of found the song and also the people who were liking it very intimidating and also just kind of growing up in a nice little middle-class Catholic family. This is, <laughs> <laughs> these are not sentiments you're exposed to. <laughs> expected to uh, to really adopt for, for yourself. So, yeah, I, I just kind of, you know, clasped my hands up my ears and went la, 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 la <laughs> for a lot of the time when, when this was this was around. Um, this week, yeah, I, I could see how important it was yeah. in this particular genre of music. And uh, I really, I think Danny's right. I like the idea of Trent Reznor and I like his courage. Mm. in the way he's gone for these things a lot more than I necessarily like the music. I, I still wouldn't say I'm an Unleashed Tales or a Trent Reznor fan, but, uh, and I did kind of need to adopt that very detached uh, point of view when listening to this song because this is just not something that I would listen to or respond to. But, um, yeah, kind of with that detachment, I can just see how important this song is and a lot of the things Tim Byron says about the sound of it just being so unique mm. at the time and how he got those sounds and how he incorporated it into creating the tone that he wanted within the concept of the downward spiral, this thing of mm. um, falling apart or being pulled apart and the industrial music really giving that an edge of his just being pull to pieces and then put back together again um, is, is really great. And yeah, the concept behind it and how you use those sounds is, um, is fantastic and just takes such a, a deep association at, with, with that kind of music and also so much thought goes into it to, to pull that off. And I think he pulls it off or whatever it is. So yeah, uh, not my kind of thing, but something I can appreciate. I um, have a... What was her name? (laughs) 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 The clown show is shut down for a week. And what does she teach? (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a lot of wine. Okay. Um, (laughs) You know what? My memories of the song, my thoughts of this song are are kind of a strange... um, uh, melting pot of what everybody at this table has said, you know. Um, you know when you said, Tim Byron, that, you know, it wasn't 
you know, and obviously it wasn't culture beat or whatever, there was still a part of me at this point that saw anything with an electronic drum beat as like it was just all in the same fucking bucket. Um, but of course I could see that this was something different and this was something kind of kind of huge. But at the same time, in that in coil kind of way, it scared the fuck out of me. Um, <laughs> like I was, I was really, really confronted by it, you know, because people didn't, say things like that so explicitly in a song you know so I, I think that I was actually really quite on the fence about it I didn't hate it but I couldn't sort of let myself like it for um, for a whole you know a whole bunch of, of various reasons um, and, and, but it's one of those things that over time and over the years I've, I've really grown to appreciate just how huge it really is this this song and I and I love listening to it now. I think it's I think it's great. Um, I watched the clip a couple of times this week and, and even that like just seeing what uh, seeing some somebody push the envelope so far and so hard both musically and visually. Um, you can see that there was obviously something that they were doing. They weren't just writing some songs. They were trying to to do something bigger, you know, and I think that they really, um, they, they really nailed it. I also saw Nine Inch Nails in about 2000, maybe it was 2000, it was one of the big day outs I went to. 2000. So maybe 2000, maybe 2003. And they played this? Probably. Um, oh, right. But I'm, I'm just like, they, uh, just in terms of Nine Inch Nails in general, I, I, I don't, I didn't like that performance. Mm. I deliberately went to see them because I was like, okay, I wonder what Nine Inch Nails like, and I just didn't like what they were doing live. But then since then, kind of like uh, like Dennington Coil, I, I like the Trent Reznor thing. Like I've read the, um, I, I like reading music biographies and watching music doc- documentaries about people who I don't even necessarily like, right? I, and I think that we're, we're mm. probably all similar mm. to that. Definitely. So I've read the, um, the Marilyn Manson biography and Trent Reznor features really heavily in that because he was a very big kind of um, like a mentor. He, he to, produced um, a couple of their albums. Yeah, and he was like a real mentor to, to, to Marilyn Manson as well and he comes off really well in that book and then he shows up in that Sound City movie, the, um, the um, Dave Roll thing and he's, he's really, really great and really interesting. Dave Roll well. selfie. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, again, Trent Reznor, I think, is a really, really important character in, in music, you know, um, and did some really amazing things. I remember my brother trying to explain to me what industrial meant, and I was like, <laughs> ah, it's just more electronic shit. But you're right, like, in retrospect, that is a fucking awesome sounding drum machine. Like, really, really is. I actually wrote a piece for a friend's blog when I think it was Trent Reznor's 30th birthday. It just said sort of how much I like him, I like the things he does digitally. I like the way he releases records. And then I've liked the plenty of songs that he's released, but there's def- he's definitely got that hardcore fan base that buys everything that he does and will pay you know, $150 for the deluxe edition of his albums. I'm not that guy. Mm. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, this is probably the only time we're going to talk about Nature Now. So I felt so justified when, and especially when, I became much more of a country and folk rock fan than than a electronic and, and mm-hmm. hard rock fan when Johnny Cash covered her. That is just such a beautiful moment in mm-hmm. music history for me. 
that that man would cover a song by that man. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Hurt, um, seeing we're talking about it, is that for um, from the Downward Spiral, the Downward Spiral is a concept album about this guy's like Downward Spiral, and the Hurt mm. is the end. It's the last track, and the, that's him basically committing suicide in, in that song. And Johnny Cash, like the very clever thing that Johnny Cash did was like he portrayed himself as being, you know, at the end of life. You know, everything hurts in that kind of old way. And he, he changed the meaning of the song in a very, very clever way um, beyond it just being a fantastic performance and a fantastic video. Like that way he changed that meaning was just was just spot on and very clever and very, you know, it reminded you why Johnny Cash was as big as he was. Well, it's that funny thing in that uh, Trent Reznor dedicated this whole album of trying to create something meaningful and almost spiritual out of um, kind of self-mortification or through the downward spiral of falling apart and mm. degrading oneself. And, yeah, Johnny Cash just turned it into a pure spiritual because yep. that's what he does. That's mm-hmm. just because he's Johnny Cash. Exactly. And we don't need to roll the dice again because we only have one movie left, and that is Heavenly Creatures, which was Tim Coyle's choice. And let's have go around the table and um, let us know what we thought Tim Coyle might choose. Tim Byron. I was pretty sure Tim Coyle would choose Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce. <laughs> Danny. I also thought he might have gone the Bruce route at Streets of Philadelphia. I thought that he might choose Loser by Beck. <laughs> <laughs> so we all got a big pool of songs that we choose from happened. Yeah. What did you choose? What did you choose? I, I chose Mr. Jones by County Crows. Crows, or is it just counting? I think it's it just, just counting, counting crows. crows. You're right. Um, so yes, that was Mr. Jones by Counting Crows. Without the Tim Coyle, why did you choose that one? Okay, well, I've spoken before of songs that are incredibly important to me, and we did REM's "Losing My Religion," 
This is probably the other one throughout the entire 1990s that is uh, falls into that category, and you can probably see there's a bit of continuity there yeah. between these two mm. songs, as we'll probably discuss. Um, but, yeah, I think if in 1994 you could write a song specifically for me, where I was at this point, this would be it. Right. Uh, just as far as the sound of it, is, was concerned and the lyrical content and the tone of it this just was where I was um, the thing the things that I loved about it then and still really like about it now are probably the biggest thing that little opening jangle yeah. the guitar just gets me every time um, it's got that very warm jangle sound that you expect from a T-Bone Burnett produced mm. record and it's in the minor key it gives, us, it gives it this very solemn and commanding kind of tone. And, yeah, then Adam Durix comes in. Um, I think a critic writing for Q Magazine of all things once said, these guys sound like punk never happened. These guys sound like nothing outside of Van Morrison and Murna ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was kind of the... And kind of the thing with this song, it just got its hooks into me straight away with that little intro. And, yeah, the the lyrical content and the tone of it, I think at this stage it would surprise no one listening to this. I was a bit of a social misfit mm. in high school and as a teenager, and this song is very much feeling you're an outsider and looking in. Uh, the whole thing with Mr. Jones, the song is that Mr. Jones is actually Adam Jurix's former bandmate, Marty Jones, but he also makes a sly little reference to, uh, and he says, I want to be Bob Dylan, but yeah. Mr. Jones wishes he was someone a little more funky, which is a reference to uh, Ballad of the Thin Man. And Ballad of the Thin Man is very much about an outsider looking in uh, amongst the beautiful and much cooler people. And, yeah, that's how I felt at the time. I was someone very much outside and looking in. And also I was someone who already wanted to get the hell out of Dodge, feeling that there was uh, a better, more exciting and glamorous life for me elsewhere, that when I grew older um, I would be striving for these kinds of things to put myself out there and to be appreciated. And we'll probably get back you, you, to you were having you're having a bit of a you know it gets better kind of yeah definitely <laughs> definitely it gets better kind of thing and this song speaks to that yeah. in a big way and look my my interests at the time were isolating I read a lot I wrote a lot I drew a lot mm. um, and you know maybe one day you'd be doing a podcast with friends in the kitchen yeah that kind of thing <laughs> or you know it's kind of maybe maybe what we've discussed here maybe in tribute I should just create a whole graphic novel dedicated to Adam Durex and Michael Stipe driving around America in a van solving crimes. Um, <laughs> they did that. I think that's what they do now. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, given their respective retirements. But, um, look, yeah, this is, this is very much... Give <laughs> that. I'm, I'm imagining nothing else. <laughs> I like how Stipe just shows up in the Colbert report just sitting there doing yeah. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, look, this is very much just the anthem for the teenager on the outside looking in and just desiring to be reconciled with all the things that you know you're seeing you're seeing people around you kind of starting to date and those things and wishing you could be a part of it but just knowing you can't be until you get older 
And the thing I got listening to it this week, look, I still like this song, mostly for sentimental reasons, but I still think it sounds really good. Uh, I still really like that guitar sound. I like that little folk rock thing they've got going on. They're daggy as hell. And yeah, I went through that period where I disowned them. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you can't be accounting for his fan. And yeah, but I've come back to it in a big way and listening to it now. Look, this song, this was my 20s. Hanging out in bars and kind of striking out with, with girls and um, kind of, you know, doing dumb shit whilst out on the town drunk. This song could be Mr. Atkins and me as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah, there's more to say, but uh, I'm interested in what everyone else thinks. Well, I'm actually going to go next on this one for the benefit of the listener. Um, you know, for those of you playing at home, so to speak, how we work this uh, choose your own adventure thing is that um, we email our, you know, what we think the other people are going to choose to uh, to JD, Tim uh, Byron's partner and friend of the podcast. And um, so we can't cheat and say, you know, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I knew you were going to pick that. So we do that. And once JD's got all of the emails, she'll send one around saying, you know, I've got, um, I've got them all now. And then we will email saying what our actual picks are. So we got that call back from JD. Okay, everybody's uh, everybody's got their their picks to me now, so you can you can go nuts. I went to write the email. My song's Mr. Jones by Cannon Crows, <laughs> and Tim had already put his <laughs> my song's Mr. Jones by Cannon Crows. So this was kind of actually my pick, and uh, Lisa Loeb was you know the, the the second the second pick. So, so close. So <laughs> close. I thought you would pick Mr. Jones. So with with that in mind, yeah, I, I love this song. I loved it then and I love it now. Um, I am actually glad that you got to choose it, Tim, because of what you just said about it because I, I don't know whether I ever thought about it or felt about it that deeply. I just really, really liked the song. Um, and again, kind of like the Lisa Loeb song as well. It's one of those songs that I've heard probably more than the Lisa Loeb song. Um, but again, every time I hear it, I just, it's a joy. It's a pleasure. And, and I, and I love hearing it. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I never, never don't like it. That's really bad English, but it's where it is. Um, I like, um, I like the sound of the band. I like the fact that it's a pretty trashy kind of band recording, you know, it's not particularly, um, uh, slickly produced. And I think that's really nice. That guitar, that jangly guitar is kind of scratchy and it's, uh, you know, sort of in, in, in a lot of ways, badly recorded drum kit, but, but in, in that, uh, deliberately badly recorded kind of way, um, his vocal is very, um, it's kind of all over the shop, but it's, 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 it's again, I don't know why there are so many uh, parallels between this and the Lisa Loeb song, but it's like, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's it, it could just be a poem, poem, you know, it's not necessarily song lyrics. It could just be a poem. It's kind of, it doesn't really follow much of a structure in terms of how it goes. Um, and and Tim, then, Tim Cole did mention who produced it, which is Tim Burnett, yeah. who is a lover of people being honest in their performances mm. and does, and did like, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and, and Bluegrass stuff. So yeah, yeah, that makes great sense that he did that. Yeah. So um, like there's this really just not a lot not to like. Um, I and mean, we'll talk about more, more about the counterpoise in general as we go, but um, 
It's inviting opportunities. I reckon right now, as we speak, at least 10 cover bands are currently playing this particular song <laughs> somewhere in the world right now. I think you're probably right. Because, like, I can just, you know, it's just one of those songs that a guy in a cover band would want to play because it's like a song about, you know, like a, I found a quote from Madame Duritz um, from this year saying, when I wrote Mr. Jones, I was a kid in a bar wishing I was more famous so it would be easier to talk to some girls. Well, there you go. And, um, yeah, every cover band guy really wants to be the rock star who's actually making original music. Um, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like, this is, this is the, the, the anthem for dudes in cover bands. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was thinking listening to it was, like, when I was 12, like, I didn't really know what it was doing. Like, I don't think I really understood where it fit into the world, world of stuff in music. Like, I didn't know enough about music to know, oh, yeah, they're trying to do this and they're trying to do that. And you don't when you're 12. You don't know what music is meant to be and you're sort of discovering it as you go, which is the great thing about being 12 and listening to music. Sure. And so listening to it now as a 31-year-old man who has like a, a far too encyclopedic knowledge of music. <laughs> like, I know too much about music and I kind of hate it in some ways, uh, but that's who I am now. And um, listening to it now, my immediate thing was, oh, he's just doing like Wild Night by Van Morrison. Right. Like that was sort of that instant kind of thing about, oh, that's what he's doing. Uh, and like, you know, that kind of categorization of music is something like that, you know, happens when you like do music criticism like I do. You're trying to put things in boxes and go, okay, that's what they're trying to do and that's what they're trying to do. Um, but yeah, when I was 12, I, I, I wasn't thinking in that kind of way. I was just hearing it. It's like a melody. I don't think I was really kind of hearing like the, the thing he was trying to do in his voice and, and all that kind of stuff. And in fact, when I was 12, I didn't know what the hell he was singing in the chorus like, it should be really obvious because it's called Mr. Jones. But, like, for some reason, I thought he was singing about someone called Joe Lambie. Okay, I'm going to register Joe Lambie at Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, to me, like, I probably, I reckon I've heard three songs by the Counting Crows. I've probably heard this. There was the the other single from this album. like the Round Here slow, was the big... Yeah, that, low, that sort of like slow, boring ballad that I didn't like much because yeah. it wasn't sort of fun and upbeat like this. And then there was that one they did with um, Vanessa Carlton, no, the God. Big Yellow Taxi. Oh, big Yellow Taxi, taxi cover. Brackets featuring... I thought it was Michelle Branch. No, no, no it was it Vanessa Carlton. Carlton. Yeah. It was, that was for a movie. Anyway, uh, yes. God, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so I certainly didn't have that kind of um, identification with Counting Crows. And I mean, when I uh, used to live with Tim Coyle, uh, like I would look through his like CD case and go, Counting Crows, they're a hangover from the 90s, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> because I, could never, I just never would have like occurred to me that I would listen to them and like them. Maybe I would. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, they're, they're just kind of like, to me, they're... It's a nice enough song, but it's kind of in that little world of 90s. In my head, I kind of, sorry for this, Tim Coyle, I kind of associate them with Hootie and the Blowfish. Mm. I mean, they have both had songs that reference Bob Dylan. <sighs> they're better than Hootie and the Blowfish, but that's sort of like saying they're better than Hitler. So, you know, <laughs> Hitler and the Blowfish. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will say Counting Crows are better than Hitler. Um. <laughs> I fucking hate this song. Oh, really? I fucking hate this band and I fucking hate Endurance and I hate everything about it. Now, I was trying to think this week and I cannot remember what the situation was, but I remember going to see the Cannon Crows at the Edmore Theatre 
in which our mutual friend and a friend of the podcast, Michael Carpenter, was supporting with the band called Butterfly Nine. Yeah. And, you know, I really quite like Butterfly Nine. I quite like the record they put out there. And I remember, th- I remember thinking clearly that, okay, this is their chance. And this is their chance because I just did the same thing to Dave Matthews' band. And I was going up with a girl who lived in a share house and a Dave Matthews' band DVD <laughs> one afternoon going, I'm going to fucking watch this and make an opinion about it and then hated them. And I remember going to this kind of close gig and I remember getting free tickets. I don't know why. Maybe through Michael. Did we go? Because I was there, so. Yeah, was like, did, maybe we got tickets together and I left after one song by the Counting Crows. I just, I just hate this band. There's just something about it. And look, and I was thinking about it today. I've been thinking about it all week. And there was just something really irrational about how much I hate this band. <laughs> and and me and Casey especially, I'm not sure if you guys, I might have gotten new copies of this book called Lost in Music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, by, yeah. by a guy called Giles Smith that I love. And he talks a lot about, you know, just someone, a girl from school said that his voice sounded funny and that's why he hates Neil Young. There is something about this band that set me off against them from the start. Yeah. And I'm not sure if anyone else said anything. I'm not sure it needed anything more than just the film clip to this song. His stupid fucking goatee, his stupid fucking dreads, <laughs> and his stupid fucking jumping up and down, his fucking stupid shoulder moments. Like, I really hated this guy. Like, I really did. And it gets even better when you find out the dreams are fake. <laughs> really? He's <laughs> You've got to be shitting me. Does anyone want to share your opinions about this? <laughs> but yeah, it is. Are you fucking fucking <laughs> real? No. No, um, but like, it's just uh, not lie. Um... Yeah, and I just never like and this album so the album is August and Everything After, after which is so big and had several hits Mr. Brown here was the other one Omaha was Omaha and my brother got this album and the other thing for me with this album is that I actually at some point I bought an anniversary deluxe universal edition in the slipcase it was when I was living in London so in the last five years I thought I'd give it another chance and mainly because of the person I'm looking at right now is Casey Atkins, because I know you love this man. And I thought, look, I'm going to give it another chance. I'm going to buy the deluxe edition of this album at HMV in Oxford Street, London, and give it another listen. And, oh, and I remember clearly at that point when I bought the reissue of August anything after, the thing I hated more than anything else was me, but <laughs> <laughs> it was just his voice. Yeah. And I don't know how to explain it any better. Because I love R.E.M., I love T-Bone Burnett, I love the sound of the guitars. The melody's really, really great. It's Adam Duritz and his silly marbles in his mouth voice. And he just like... And the lyrics weren't great for me, but yeah, I, I hate this song as much as any song that we've talked about. So far in this podcast. Wow. Fight, That's really fight, fight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, another thing that we need to run through for our Choose Your Own Adventure episode is our honourable mentions from 1994. So these are the songs that we would have um, or that we also could have picked before, uh, you know, ultimately deciding what we did choose. So, um, Danny. Well, well, two of you guys thought Pearl Jam for me and... That was definitely a consideration. And the only thing that killed Pearl Jam for me 
is that they had about 45 songs in the charts. <laughs> <laughs> like it was Animal and Daughter. And, and Spin Black Soda. Yeah, yeah there was nothing really that stuck out for me and my memories of Pearl Jam <laughs> are maybe before this and definitely after this. Like my favourite Pearl Jam song was like, you know, who we are and all that sort of stuff and do the evolution and things that came after this. So it wasn't the era Pearl Jam for me. Um, it really is interesting that it was the heaviest song, so it was like Soundgarden and things like that that really got me. The only other song that didn't fit in that for me was the highest selling number two of the year, which is always by Bon Jovi. Uh, and yeah. there is just something about that song that I loved at the time. We've talked about Bon Jovi before. <laughs> Tim Coyle, honourable mentions. Um, well, obviously, Stay was yes. definitely... Uh, high up on my list, as, as I mentioned. <laughs> um, Cornflake Girl by Tori Amos. Yeah, nice. Oh, yes, yeah, on there right. as yeah. well. Um, Womp, there it is. <laughs> 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 that was always going to be my joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone had to mention that. Um, Design Love Triangle yeah. by Fremte. Yeah. Um, the other guys mentioned Streets of Philadelphia. Um, look, I would have mentioned it just for the sake of getting Bruce Springsteen onto this podcast. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but it's it's okay. It, it's a decent song. It's certainly a lot better than most of what is on the list we've got in front of us. But, yeah, it's it's not a bit too Springsteen for mine. I, I, I wouldn't pick it just for the for the sake of doing that. And look, Mr. Jones was much more important to me than that particular song. So, yeah, fair enough, Tim Byron. I was really considering picking Dupe by Dupe. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, no, well, I, I did really like that song in 1994 for about a week. And then I grew really, really sick of it. So did a lot of people. Um, but yeah, the, <laughs> um, the stuff I really like thought maybe I should pick was um, yeah, Cornflake yeah. Girl by Tori Amos, which I really love. Um, other things, yeah. Bizarre Love Triangle by Frente, I came pretty close to, and I probably would have chosen that if Danny hadn't chosen um, the Frente song from a, a couple of years back. Casey, what about you? Um, so me, uh, Loser by Bear was up there. Um, <laughs> that was my choice. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely on the list. I mean, I, I, I almost chose um, Mr. Jones, which uh, Tim Byron thought I'd choose. Um, also, Black Hole Sun was on my list by, by Soundgarden, which I think... Um, but look, it was kind of, it was tough. Like a lot of great songs this year, a lot of great songs, and really, it's starting to really, really feel um, like when you listen and, and look at these lists of songs, it's feeling really defining of, of, of years. You know, like I can really define what nineteen ninety four sounded like. So yeah, I, I guess that brings us to the end of another 90% Hits. This is Choose Your Own Adventure 1994. As always, though, we have to pick the favourite song um, of uh, what the other people chose from tonight. So just to uh, remind us all of what we've chosen. And just to recap, those songs were um, Arsehole by Dennis Leary, <laughs> Stay by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories, <laughs> Closer by Nine Inch Nails, and Mr. Jones by Counting Crows, Tim Coyle, I think we can probably tell. No contest, so. Alrighty. Awesome. Okay. Tim Byron. Close up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got Counting Crows. 
<laughs> so we're nowhere. So we are absolutely nowhere. Casey is hosting today because he won the last Choose Your Adventure. Maybe we'll just roll a dice between now and the next Choose Your Adventure to see who else hosts. For sure. Um, so I usually tell people where they can find us on the internet, but maybe Danny, you can do that tonight. Well, we're on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Tumblr and various places under 90% hits, 90 as the numerals and percent spelled out in words, and we're on Gmail, and yeah, please write to us, we read every comment, and yeah, follow us and we talk back to you. We, we post lots on the 90% hits Tumblr, uh, we, we post uh, essays about the songs that we've enjoyed, and we'll post like links, uh, videos to the, um, you know, the follow-up singles uh, that, you know, almost got into the charts uh, and uh, and things like that. And we, um, we'll we also post, like, reviews of the number twos. And that's mostly uh, me and Tim Coyle doing that. Uh, Tim Coyle has been on fire recently as we're writing about it. Um, he's gotten fired up yes. about Dan- Brian Adams and Celine Dion. And uh, we've gotten some interesting <laughs> feedback as a result of that. <laughs> and what yeah. was that conversation between uh, Michael Bolton and Wittgenstein? <laughs> I think uh, you, you, you've got to go and find that if you haven't already read it by this point. Um, as usual, still looking for a sign-off. I haven't found one. We're just going to pick one out of nowhere at some point. Um, but uh, for now, uh, I'm just going to say we're assholes and we're proud of it. <laughs> <laughs>